Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. I love to hear and learn from people talking passionately about a subject, even if I know next to nothing about it, to have them share their information enthusiasm with me feels contagious, and I want to have that feeling. That brings us to uh, this episode of Autism Stories. Manuel Diaz joins us to talk about his passion for physics and how that has developed a career for him. Manuel also discusses his autistic advocacy work and Spanish language resources for the autistic community. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Manuel, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Wanted to start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Interesting question, yeah. So, well, I guess it would start when I was diagnosed. When I was 16 years old, I was diagnosed as autistic. At first, I thought I had found, like... This answer of why socializing was always so difficult for me. But I keep doing a lot of research and I found a lot of uh, misinformation out there that supposedly, you know, I was supposed to lack empathy, emotions, and the theory of mind. So, you know, I didn't think I liked any of those. So I thought that the whole diagnosis was probably like a mistake, you know? Like I didn't really, really be autistic then. And so that is what ended up happening when I was 16. And then when I was an undergrad at UT Austin, basically I was seeing this therapist there, and she convinced me to go to a meeting where there would be other autistic people. So I kind of reluctantly went to the meeting, but I was very surprised, I guess, because basically they weren't, like the people there were not how I pictured them, right? They had, like, they had emotions and they had many of the same problems that I had. And that was probably the first time that I felt like I fit in. And, you know, I started meeting more and more autistic people after that. And, you know, I always found myself saying, like, hey, I do that too a lot. So, basically, it took me, like, five years after my diagnosis then to, like, find the autistic community and autistic culture. And I think from autistic culture, I learned to spread a message, you know, of, like, love and acceptance. And that helped me rid myself of my internalized ableism. And I think the autistic culture also like taught me about social justice and to fight for like empowerment of marginalized groups. I think there's even like an innate part of the autistic culture, a part that comes in the form like like when we talk with our hands, like rocking, flapping, spinning, ecolalia, pacing, and any other form of stimming. So I think what we share, I learned that we share something very deep. And I think what we share transcends culture, religion, race, ethnicity, and gender. I found like words to describe my experience in the world. I felt validation for the ways I move. I found 
I found a founder that I accepted myself for who I am, and I felt like I found my people, and that I'm not alone anymore, and that I know where I belong, and now I'm proud to be autistic. That's beautiful. I read, in addition to you identifying as autistic, that you also identify with having a kinetic cognitive style. I'm wondering, you know, for our listeners that may not be aware of this term, what exactly is this style of learning? I had a conversation with an autistic scholar named Nick Walker, and basically Nick Walker suggested the term kinetic cognitive style to me in a conversation we had as well with ADHD. Basically, as others have said, basically online and stuff, the term ADHD has the words deficit and disorder in it, but it only captures in the name what neurotypicals find the most annoying. And by referring to ADHD as kinetic cognitive style, or KCS, it's no longer something inherently bad, as the term ADHD suggests. Moreover, that doesn't really mean it's not a disability, though. As a social model of disability suggests, we are disabled by society's lack of accommodations for our differences. I would also say that, well, I would normally not say that I have kinetic concept or KCF. Since it's still an identity and it's part of me, it's like saying I'm Latino or like saying I'm autistic. And because of that, I would normally say I'm kinetic. And basically the relationship between the terms kinetic and KCS is the same as the relationship between the terms autistic and autism. Now, you have your bachelor's and master's degrees in physics. So what is it about physics that made you want to study this? Okay, so I think I was always like an incredibly curious person. So as a kid, I was obsessed with becoming a scientist. I wanted to understand why we are here, why is there something rather than nothing. I still feel the same need, you know, now to understand as much as I can about the universe that I live in and the rules of how it works. And then later on, when I was six, like, no, when I was 15 years old, actually, in sophomore year of high school, I was watching the documentary on Einstein on TV. And so in the documentary, there was physicists talking about Einstein's dream for a unified theory of physics. This dream to have a theory of physics, basically, that explains every aspect of nature seemed very beautiful to me, and it called on my need to understand everything. That was the spark that ignited my journey into physics. As I embarked on a quest to learn more about physics, I realized that many physicists were pretty different from the average person. In particular, I remember reading about the famous physicist and Nobel laureate, Paul Dirac, who many think was autistic, actually, and I actually felt weird that I identify someone with some of the stuff they said about him. I just didn't quite understand why, since this was a year before I was diagnosed as autistic. Mind you also that as a kid, I faced many struggles due to being different, including the fact that I didn't learn to read as a kid until I was nine years old. And I had trouble making friends and had to deal with feeling isolated. So when people try to discourage me from going into physics, saying it was hard and it would involve a lot of struggles, it actually only helped push me further in the direction of physics. Struggle was what I had always known, so why not struggle with something that seemed worthwhile? And that ended up making me feel like I was meant to be a physicist. And I guess more specifically, I would say that the reason I'm passionate about physics is because I see immense beauty in nature. 
And I want to understand it all. I know, like, Einstein and every other physicist, I will die before solving every beautiful mystery of nature. I just think in those moments when I see how an equation can lead to the all the beauty around me, I'm left in, like, a feeling of amazement that is hard to describe. Uh, a state of euphoria that makes all the pain of learning so much just to understand something now, as part of your master's degree in physics, you wrote a thesis on semi-classical consistent constraints with moments in spherically symmetric quantum gravity. Can you explain what the heck that means and what the paper is about for someone like me that hardly knows the first thing about physics? Yeah, so this is probably the hardest question so far. Um, <laughs> But I'll try my best to see if I can. So basically, there are two types of physics that we can use to describe the world. There is classic physics and there is quantum physics. So everything in our universe consists of quantum fields that, when they absorb energy, these quantum fields create particles. So in a sense, the quantum fields are like an ocean. And the waves in the ocean are the particles. And these waves, aka the particles, the way they behave is described by quantum physics. So quantum physics basically tells us that the world is intrinsically random as opposed to deterministic. For example, when you flip a coin, you normally say there's a 50-50 chance that you get the heads or tails. However, if I told you that there's what force I threw the coin in the air with, right? And then I tell you, okay, let's account for air resistance and any other variables. We account for everything, no matter how complex. I could essentially predict exactly with 100% accuracy if the coin will fall on heads or tails using purely classical physics. So in this way, the coin flip is not actually random. There's just too many variables for us to do the calculation. Too many unknowns, and it's too complex. But if we try in theory, we could do it. But in quantum physics, that's not the case. Quantum physics, the behavior of particles is actually random. And you can only know like the probability that something will happen. Even though our coin and other macroscopic objects are made of particles that behave randomly, all the particles' behaviors sort of average out, with a few exceptions. And that's how classical physics arises from quantum physics. Now, there's also the fact that all the other forces in nature can be described by quantum fields, but unlike all the other forces in nature, we have been unable to describe gravity as a quantum field. This is known as trying to quantize gravity. So physicists have been attempting to quantize gravity for 80 years now, and it's hard to admit that we are not really any closer to truly being able to do actual quantum gravity calculations. Therefore, the thesis was basically about looking at a way in which one can add quantum corrections to the classical physics of gravity. In order for this quantum corrections to not be completely arbitrary, I need to basically show that they respect the main principle Einstein's classical theory of gravity, known as general relativity. And from this, the hope is to be able to make predictions that are beyond those main biases theory, and therefore find clues for a complete theory of quantum gravity. So as far as the title of the paper is concerned, as the title says, I start with a model of spherically symmetric gravity. The behavior of gravity is then described by something, uh, some mathematical objects called constraints. 
I then add quantum effects to the behavior of gravity by adding mathematical objects called moments to the constraints. This creates new constraints that are not classical but are not fully quantum either. That's why they are called semi-classical constraints in the title. And finally in the title, the reason I say consistent is because I mean that I proved that these new constraints still respect the main principle of Einstein's theory of gravity. Well, I think that was a great explanation, and I definitely understand about flipping a coin, so that was helpful. <laughs> now, currently, you're getting your PhD in theoretical physics. Has that been mostly online, or how has that impacted your experience um, in pursuit of your PhD in this era of the pandemic and COVID and all that? So, yeah, my first year at UMass was all online. It was an interesting experience. The fact that the lectures were recorded was incredibly convenient. And I felt that the take-home exams were much better at allowing people to show their actual knowledge of the subject. However, it was also hard not having people to work with or being able to meet many of the other students in the program. This also meant there was a lack of any sense of community. It was also difficult to fight off the feeling of isolation caused by COVID. And I had to push myself mentally to keep going despite how appealing an option it was to not do anything. Prior to getting your master's, you were involved in autism advocacy work. One of the things you did was create a blog, Neurodivergencia Latina. Mm -hmm. Did I say that right? <laughs> Neurodivergencia Latina. Neurodivergencia Latina. What do you see as some of the challenges for autistic Latinos and Latinas in getting the support they need as adults? I think basically autistics who are Latino, Latina, Latina, or Hispanic, they usually experience like a very strong stigma towards neurodivergences in the culture. The tendency of people in the culture is that it's best to ignore any such differences and try to fit in as much as possible. For this reason, I think that this stigma is the biggest challenge faced by individuals who grow up in, around this culture. Without acknowledging their differences, it's unlikely that neurodivergent individuals, even autistic individuals, would try to get the support they need, basically. So when I made the blog, Neurodivergencia Latina, there was almost nothing out there about the neurodiversity movement in Spanish. This was also one of the biggest motivators for starting the blog. I knew that uh, having material in Spanish out there could make a huge difference in the lives of neurodivergent individuals who are immersed in my culture. Even if only a few individuals are able to accept themselves as neurodivergent and understand they are not broken, then they can help change the culture so that future generations of neurodivergent people will not experience the stigma of feeling broken just because they are different. Now, you mentioned that when you created your blog, you couldn't find anything much out there. So, and I'm familiar with so many blogs written in English by English-speaking autistics. However, you know, there are certainly autistic folks that speak just about any language. So I'm wondering, are there any blogs written by Spanish-speaking autistics that you would recommend? So yeah, like I mentioned, when I started the blog on Neurodivergencia Latina, there was pretty much a huge lack of information in Spanish. There was not much out there, but, you know, 
it's been a while now, a couple of years, and over the years I've seen that this has changed tremendously actually. So there's like no way I could give an exhaustive list off the top of my head, but I think you could find more from the two places I would recommend. Two places that are great to find great information about autism in Spanish are called, well, one of them is Aprender a Quererme, Autista Cuestionando Paradigmas. And the other one is Autismo Mi Cerebro Atipico. Thanks. And due to you pursuing your academic studies, I would imagine getting a PhD is quite time-consuming. I know you had to put your autism advocacy on hold. However, are you looking to do more of that in the future? And if so, what would you like for that to look like? Well, right now, based on my past experience, I'm starting to work on starting a student organization at UMass Amherst. And then I hope to not just hold meetings, but to discuss neurodiversity and different neurodivergent experiences. But I also hope to create a space where neurodivergent students can feel welcome and be reminded that there are others like them out there. Moreover, I want to hold events to show how society can better accommodate neurodivergent people. One example that comes to mind is a sensory friendly concert. Many artists can get sensory overload at a regular concert. A sensory friendly concert not only allows for people to stim and show their appreciation for the music in whatever way they feel they want to move their body without any judgment. There is also the fact that this will include a separate space so that people who are getting overwhelmed can avoid sensory overload and they can retreat to that space. I also hope to use the organization to hold public speaking events to educate the public about neurodiversity and the neurodiversity paradigm. I love that, and I think the importance of those types of concerts are so critical. Well, Manuel, I really enjoyed your, you know, the time today. Um, thanks so much for joining me um, and for this great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Manuel for the conversation. It's exciting to see someone take a chance like Manuel in regards to something they care about and by consistently being committed to follow that path and then where that leads them to. If there's something in your life you want to learn more about or a path you would like to explore, Autism Personal Coach can help you with that in figuring out step-by-step step how to go down that path and support you along the way in your journey. If that's something of interest to you, then you can uh, book a call with me today. The link to book that Zoom call can be found in the podcast description for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would very much will be appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, I will be talking with one of the coaches from Autism Personal Coach. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.